Greetings and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime. I'm your host, Frank Zafiro, and this is an open and shut episode with Aaron Philip Clark. Now, if you look at the runtime here, you'll probably say, this is not very open and shut, Frank. This is more uh, uh, open and open and open and then shut. Uh, And that is true. But uh, I had a great conversation with Aaron. He had a lot of interesting things to say. And uh, quite frankly, I I have a hard time leaving things on the cutting room floor that I think you would very much like to hear. And so I uh, sort of sideways apologize at the length of the episode, but I guarantee you that it is worth it. Uh, Who is Aaron Clark, you might be asking yourself? He is the author of Under Color of Law, which is the first Trevor Finnegan novel. Uh, Trevor Finnegan is a black detective with LAPD, brand new detective. Uh, Aaron wrote this book uh, with a lot of subtext to it, but it's not the kind of subtext that is clanky or invasive. It's very, very organic to the story, and uh, you'll notice it because you're a smart reader uh, through osmosis or because someone points it out to you, but not because it hits you over the head as you're reading, which is, of course, what subtext is supposed to be like. Uh, So I really had a great conversation with him. He's a cool guy. I think you'll enjoy it. We're going to talk to him in just a minute, right after I let you know that Wrong Place Right Crime is proudly sponsored by Down and Out Books. Down and Out Books is a mid-sized publisher of crime fiction, most of it at the darker and grittier end of the spectrum. That sounds like something you might dig. You can go to their website, and that is downandoutbooks.com. That's downandoutbooks.com all spelled out, dot com, down and out books, take the journey with us. All right, well, I've been building up uh, Aaron Philip Clark a little bit. Now it's time for the payoff. Let's hear from him. Well, hello, Aaron. Welcome to the show. Ah, Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So uh, we're here today to talk about your first Trevor Finnegan book, Under the Color of Law. And we were talking off mic before this interview started, um, and I let you know that not only have I read the book, but uh, I very much enjoyed it. Uh, I thought you did an excellent job of capturing uh, the realities, the harsh realities of an aspect of police work. And, uh, and that comes from a, uh, some experience in, in the field, right? It does. Uh, You know, I grew up with law enforcement, so um, I wouldn't, I guess I'm not considered a legacy, but my uncle was uh, LAPD detective sergeant. And I also have a cousin who's currently on the job. And I myself was in the uh, LAPD academy. And uh, and you got injured during the academy and then uh, decided rather than to go back through again to try a different direction. I did. I mean, you know, I, I before going in, I was a, uh, I worked in higher education, so I was a professor. I had taught English, uh, humanities, creative writing, um, and so I had also worked with resettling uh, refugees. So I had other experience, and I think um, you know, for me, life just kind of started taking a different turn once I left the academy, and so I I decided to really focus and hone in on uh, writing. And so that's when um, I said, you know. I had two passions. I had law enforcement and writing. And I think for me, writing kind of won out uh, in the end. Well, I guess that is an excellent segue into the fact that uh, Under Color of Law is not your first novel. It's actually, uh, I think, like your fourth. Yes. Yeah. So the first three uh, were actually published by Shotgun Honey, huh? Yeah. So actually, originally, the, the Science of Paul, my first novel, 
which was my thesis in, in grad school, was published by New Pulp Press. So at the time, you know, John Bassoff ran ran New Pulp. And so, you know, it, I think it kind of stuck out a little bit because he was publishing a lot of um, horror novels um, and kind of very like, you know, existential noir. And so, uh, you know, The Science of Paul, I think, was a little bit different on that roster. But I was happy to, to publish there uh, simply because I knew I was going to have a level of freedom that I probably wouldn't have gotten at a, a larger publishing house. And so later, uh, Ron Earl uh, over at Shotgun Honey, I was pitching him a, a, my third book, uh, The Furious Way. And he said, hey, what's going on with the Paul Little novels? And he said, I would love to put those out again. So uh, that's kind of how that came about. Yeah, Ron Earl Phillips is a, a pretty cool guy. I've had the opportunity to run into him at a, a couple of conferences. Uh, he always introduces himself as the other Phillips because of the, <laughs> the, the big shadow that Gary Phillips can cast. Uh, some of those <laughs> That's <events>. funny. <laughs> uh, but uh, Shotgun Honey is a great imprint, a great publisher. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, the Paul Little books, these are crime fiction books from the side of the criminal. Right, right. So Paul Little is this uh, guilt-ridden uh, ex-con who is trying to do the right thing and is not so sure that he's kind of fit for society. And so he's a little bit of a shut-in living in Philadelphia. Um, his grandfather dies and leaves him a piece of land in North Carolina. Hmm. And he feels like, hey, if I could just get to this land, I could really just live and be myself and and that's kind of his plan. So he leaves this relationship, uh, you know, with his girlfriend and says, you know what, I, we've been on borrowed time anyway. I think it's better if I just get out of here, but he gets caught up in this, essentially this mystery where, where he had pawned this job off on, uh, this other guy, um, who was kind of this, this petty thief and the thief dies. Um, and he ultimately is murdered. And so Paul is kind of drawn into this, uh, this murder mystery that he feels compelled to solve. And so, you know, he, it's hard for him to get out of North Carolina, but in the second book, he makes it there. Um, and then he gets caught up in another, <laughs> another situation in the South, <laughs> you know, like because, classic noir. Because wherever you go, there you are. right? <laughs> exactly. So, you know, he's minding his business and then here he is, he's caught up in another, another situation. And the furious yeah, way, is that uh, something different? The Furious Way is a standalone. So mm -hmm. after writing the Paul Little novels, I just wanted to really just write something that was just super pulpy. And so, you know, The Furious Way is a is an aging kind of gangster who's living in San Pedro, uh, you know, L.A. And he is sought out, sought out by a young girl who uh, wants to learn how to kill people. Mm -hmm. And essentially this gangster's methodology is that he trains dogs to maul people, um, and that's kind of how he goes about <laughs> he goes about doing it. Um, and so she she uh, seeks him out for tutelage, and then it awakens something in him because he's kind of in his you know golden years. So it awakens something in him, and uh, he becomes kind of uncontrollable. And um, yeah, as they seek to get revenge, they're getting revenge on an assistant DA who she believes is responsible for the death of her, her mother. So there's all type of conflict there. Um, but it is very much about the gentrification in Los Angeles. Um, it's kind of a, a metaphor for the past and how the past um, is essentially being erased, you know, in this community. And, you know, there's a lot of 
it's a, it's a lot of subtext in there, um, kind of about how LA is the victim of the wrecking ball. No one really remembers the past here. Um, it just constantly keeps getting erased. And that's how he feels, the, you know, this aging gangster feels like they're going to erase me. Um, so I got to do something so people know I was here. So, Well, I'm intrigued. Um, and having read Under the Color of Law, you know, I, I believe you could pull it off pretty well. So I'll have to, I'll have to check that out. Um, and, and uh, you know, not to fanboy on you, but I really did enjoy this book. And one of the things I liked about it was that it, it is successful on multiple levels. I mean, it, you wrote a really good mystery. If somebody just wants to follow Trevor Finnegan as he tries to solve this puzzle, you know, which is a fairly unique one, by the way. Uh, I don't want to spoil it for anybody or or whatever, but the victim was killed in a very, I, not in a way I've ever heard of before, at least not exactly <laughs> so. Broadly so, maybe, but this exact method is the first time I've ever heard of it, much less read it, somebody put it in a book. So kudos to you there. But oh, you, thank you. you, it succeeds on quite a few other levels as well um, that, that I think we could touch on as we move forward. Uh, what gave you the idea to finally write a book uh, that was about a police officer rather than uh, like your first three books? Well, having gone through the academy, um, I had that experience. Um, I kind of felt like it was, I could bring a fresh taste to, to it. And I kind of told myself early on, I said, if you ever write about, you know, police officers, that I wanted it to be um, a different, a different approach, you know, right down to the point of view. So, you know, it's first person, uh, present tense, because I wanted to have this kind of visceral uh I wanted the reader to have this visceral experience where they're kind of walking in, in Trevor's shoes. Um, and so I wanted it to be very immediate. So as we kind of move through the, through the story and we, and he's slowly uncovering different things, I wanted to to feel shocking for him and, you know, the reader at the same time, you know, and, and I think that there's a little danger there if it's, you know, first person present tense, because he doesn't know what's coming and you don't know what's coming either, you know? So it's, it has that kind of, um, you know, very visceral vibe to it. And so, you know, that was, that was the, that was kind of originally, that was the idea is that tell a, a, a kind of a fresh take on this black rookie detective. And as I was writing it, that's when I think some of the feelings and things that were going on just in terms of how people were viewing law enforcement how in some ways law enforcement wasn't helping their cause, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and I just felt like I wanted to explore that. Well, that is one of the, the layers that I was uh, referring to. I mean, there are a lot of them. They, there's a relationship with, uh, with a girlfriend. There's a relationship with a long time friend that he has feelings for. There's a relationship with his father that, you know, yeah. is, is there, there's a relationship with his coworkers, his relationship with the department, uh, all of that going on beneath this investigation, which is interesting and, and, and tense uh, in its own right. But one of those layers certainly is the idea of race relations or rate, the role race has within the police department. And I was not aware that uh, LAPD has or had a recruitment problem, if you, you know, when it comes to black recruits. I mean, it's depicted in your book that white recruits, Latino recruits are plentiful, but Asian and black recruits are hard to come by. Um, yeah. now is that, does that, is that reflected in reality or was that something that you amped up for the purposes of the fiction? 
Oh no, that's very, that's very real. And it's almost a running joke. Uh, you know, it's like a graduation, you know, the, uh, when my cousin graduated, um, officer came over and she said, well, it looks like you're the one. Cause she, she was the only one, <laughs> she was only female. Um, but normally it's, it's, you know, one black or African-American officer, female and one male. And that's, that's how it's, how it's been for a while. And I think that, um, you know, it's, it's, there's different reasons I think for it. Um, some of those reasons are obviously not good, uh, but it doesn't reflect the demographics of the city. And that mm-hmm. has been one of the biggest arguments when it comes to the recruiting practice. Now LAPD has attempted to, I won't say rectify that, but um, alleviate some of that. And so they have a pre-academy, which I have feelings about, but they have this idea of this pre-academy that is exclusively for African-American recruits um, to help them be more successful. It doesn't really fix the problem though, you know, because part of it is retention, but it doesn't really fix the problem. And I don't think it really needs to exist. In my opinion, it is more about the recruitment process in general. And they have to kind of dig deep and say, okay, well, how come we're not getting, you know, a lot of the black applicants are not matriculating? What What is going on there? Is the problem at the beginning of the process that the numbers aren't there to begin with? Uh, or is the problem that the, you know, the matriculation is very low? Or is it some of both? <sighs> That's a good question. I, I think the numbers are definitely smaller than, I would say, Latinx recruits. For sure. But I would say that the issue really boils down to matriculation. Um, there's something that happens in the process that then somehow these these officers are not are being disqualified for whatever reason. For me, it it was I you know, I will say after I talked to other recruits, my experience varied from the experience of some other officers. And I gotta put it like that, just in terms of the um background check and just kind of my treatment of kind of going through, I think that I was I was definitely more scrutinized than some of my fellow fellow recruits. And the only reason I think that I was it, they let up a little bit was because I had family on the job and because of my college degrees and different things. But I think if I was kind of just the guy off the street, you know, or didn't serve in the military, um, it would have been harder. Um, so, you know, like any job, there's there's levels of nepotism. And there's also, you know, people have to vouch, kind of vouch for you um, in some kind of way. So, you know, even in the past, in the 70s, the thing was to go get uh, someone from the community. So oftentimes there were people in the community, community activists and people who had worked really well with law enforcement, definitely during the crack epidemic um, to help, you know, kind of say, hey, this this is, you know, this particular recruit is really good. Um, You know, don't give them a hard time. And so that's kind of been the culture. Uh, that you need somebody to kind of put a stamp and say, oh, no, you, you know, leave them alone, let them matriculate. It shows up in the book um, in that black recruits in particular are subjected to treatment that, I mean, there's no other way to describe it other than racist. Um, 
But it's it's interesting because the justification that some of the characters give for that treatment is, you know, basically to toughen them up. If they can take this being called these things and being treated this way in the police academy, then when they get out on the street and they're facing a hardened gangbanger or a homicidal maniac or whatever, you know, somebody out of their mind with grief or whatever it is, they can do it. And I mean, there's a certain amount of psychological validity to that idea, but it seems like maybe not even maybe it seems like it uh, in application obviously is very misguided well i think there's a level of trauma that comes with it so yeah you're it quote unquote toughens you up but then it also traumatizes you right mm-hmm. so it's 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 one of those things where um you know and and really that part in the in the book was inspired by what my uncle went through during his rookie days um, in the 80s. So he went in, he went in, I believe, in 1982. And so, you know, he had told me this story about, you know, his training officer and they roll up to a house and they go in and then basically, I believe it's in South Central, it's a, it's a black family and they are having this domestic altercation, right? So, and they have, they go to this house all the time. And so he said, you know, he was leaving um, and he, you know, he's 20 something years old and he's basically trying to lecture grown folks to like, you know, <laughs> chill out, you know. Mm-hmm. And so he said he, he was talking to him and he said his training, you know, his TO, his training officer was standing by the door like, you are wasting your time, you know, save mm-hmm. your breath. And as they were leaving, you know, his training officer says like, you know, well, these N words essentially will never learn. And and he he said that that was the pinnacle moment where he was like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and for him, he said he 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 was frozen because he in his mind, this training officer was supposed to keep him safe. Right. So it's almost like a, a really weird, abusive relationship because you put your faith in this individual to keep you safe and you have this bond with um, because that is your partner. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's this undercurrent where it's kind of like. You know, because you have that badge, they don't his training officer didn't see him like this family. And he's saying, well, this this family is, you know, is no different than could be no different than my family. You know, Mm -hmm. so if you see them like this, how do you see me? So it was very it was traumatizing for him, you know, early on. And now obviously he had a family he had to he had to support. Um, and he said that was the moment where he said, OK, well, how are you going to weather this? How are you going to kind of exist within this department? Uh, and he had to compartmentalize. and He had to figure out how to do that. You know, so it's a lot of work, you know, for a black officer. And you, it would seem, drew directly on this uh, with a character in the book who was one of Finnegan's least favorite field training officers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So Joey, Joey Garcia is very much a, um, he's amalgamation of, of a variety of, of officers that I had, I had encountered, um, you know, and so for him, you know, I, I wanted. <laughs> you took all the bad parts as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he, the bad parts were loud, you know mm, what I mean? Sure. Like, it's like, you know, when you're, 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 you're thinking about some, you know, TOs and, and especially some of my instructors in the academy, they did have good parts, but for some reason, the the bad parts were just so, were so amped up. They were so, so loud. Yeah. And, you know, there were times where it was interesting because um, I had a, uh, <laughs> I I had spoke to the, uh, the captain of the academy and I, I remember he said, well, Clark, how's your experience going? And I thought it was, interesting you know so i kind of told him i said well you know it's 
I mean, it's fine. You know, I mean, academically, I was good at taking the tests and stuff. You know, if it hadn't been for my injury, I probably, you know, I, who knows? I probably would have been been fine. You know, but I just thought it was Israel because I said, well, I kind of told him. I said, you know, we have a we have a instructor here, and I said, it, you know, he um, he's teaching us first aid, but it, I said he does a lot of yelling and. <laughs> And I said, I don't understand how it correlates with first aid because I said, you know, the way I learn is like, I'm really meticulous. So I'm like, just kind of tell me what I need to do. But this particular instructor, and he said, yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> We're working on that. <laughs> so it was one of those things where, you know, everyone kind of knew, you know, that some of these instructors were just kind of just, they were turned up too loud, you know? And so I think it was something that they were very, very much aware of. And so- uh, it's generational too, right? I and mean, is it is generational. So right. you know, s- some of the instructors have been there for a while. You know, this is how they. I mean, this is how they rolled, and they mm-hmm. they don't they haven't adapted uh, mm-hmm. because back then it was all physical training. You know, back in the eighties and nineties, you know, you just had run days. I mean, they in terms of the education part of it and learning penal codes and stuff. They 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 learned the ones that they were going to use, but mostly this is a physical. You know, and so they would even tell us, they said, well, in terms of understanding the job and the the legal aspects, they said, you guys are light years from where we were. And so, you know, it is generational in the sense that they're used to more of a paramilitary Mm -hmm. kind of environment. And this was shifting. It was shifting more to academic. We spent a lot of time just learning, you know, and so it was hard for them to kind of turn that, you know, turn that down. Um, And so Garcia essentially is is one of those guys. (laughs) Yeah. Even though he's yeah. he's not he's not as he's young, you know, mm-hmm. younger, but he is one of those guys who's like, he can't turn it down. This is it. When I went through the uh, the academy in the early 90s, they called it stress inoculation, so, <laughs> you know, which is a wonderful term. And I, I bought into it. I still buy into it. I mean, I think you do have to train the way that you play, right? You yep. have to practice the way you play. You have to train for the realities. But it was just clumsy. And in the case that you outline in the book, it was just wrong. I mean, you just, I don't think you need to call somebody degrading names uh, to, to stress them out. There's other ways to inoculate them against stress so that they can handle stress and, and be able to perform under stress. But it is generational, both in terms of how old somebody is, but also just like when they came on the job and who their mentor was and who their heroes were and all that. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. One of the things I really liked about your your book, though, Aaron, was that you didn't write Finn as this shining armored knight who is, you know, a crusader who is, doesn't make any mistakes and is perfectly likable, and he's only being picked on because he's black, right? I mean, and instead, he's a human being who has his own flaws. He also has his skills. He's a very good investigator. He's very tenacious. He's, he picks up on subtle things. So his his cop intuition is strong. His street IQ is there. But he is a gray character. I mean, um, I, I don't think it's a spoiler, but there's an event very early on in the book, the prologue, essentially, that is a pretty terrible event, a pretty harsh event. And you learn pretty quickly, like I think in chapter one, that even though Finn was against what happened, uh, it happened. And so he turned it to his political advantage. He used it to achieve his own ends. And he, you know, he manipulated the situation to his own benefit. Yeah. Where, whereas the altruistic, you know, shining knight uh, in his armor would have taken a very different route. Um, 
and and that is true throughout the book. I mean, he he does improve in this regard. He, there is growth, but he's kind of doing that same thing for a while in this book. And so, I mean, that, obviously that was a very conscious decision. Yes. Um, you know, for me, I felt like I didn't want to write that type of character who, and I don't, I don't even know how to phrase it, right? So kind of the do-gooder cop because, or who's as a hero, because, you know, I, I'm not so sure the literary hero necessarily exists anymore. I think that, you know, my approach to writing is to write human beings who have heroic moments because we're not all one thing. We're not all good. We're not all bad. We are truly existing in the gray, just like law enforcement exists in the gray. And so he sold himself a bill of goods believing that, okay, I'll do this one thing. I'll go along with this one thing because it's going to put me in a position to make things better, which is why I have the James Baldwin quote, you know, uh, you know, Serata has, you know, kind of lived, that's her philosophy, but this idea that people pay for what they do uh, by the lies that they live and the consequences, repercussions of our actions are things that potentially can haunt us for time, for years to come, you know, till we go in the grave um, if we don't do something about it. And so, you know, while he had the best intentions, that choice that he made ultimately haunts him through the story, throughout the story. And, you know, the fruit comes to bear, you know, <laughs> for him. Yeah, he planted the seeds of his own destruction, uh, like, basically. Yeah. And he also makes some choices, relationship choices, and he's motivated by things that aren't always the purest, um, which just yeah. makes him a, a really great, great character. Because as you said, he does have heroic moments. I mean, his... His desire to find the killer of this academy recruit who, by all descriptions that, that come out of his investigation, was a good person looking mm -hmm. to do good, uh, is very admirable. He has that tenacity and that uh, kind of that Harry Bosch, everyone matters sort of approach to the case. And that is heroic. And it's a tough case. I think anybody who reads this will appreciate that. Not just tough in the case, in the sense that it's not easy to figure out, but also tough in that the things that occur are are tough to read about. Particularly if you're an old retired cop who doesn't like to see cops doing stupid things like Joey Garcia <laughs> being a jerk, you know, and, and some other things that happen in there. How did you feel writing this book? Um, you know, the, the topic of policing today and, and the way that that race, you know, just is, is woven into every, everything that we examine about policing and, and, and I guess society in general, as you approach this book, as you're writing this book, I mean, that had to be something that was very much on the forefront of your mind. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's set in 2014. And so it's, it's a few months after, you know, Michael Brown, Eric Garner. And when I was editing the book, that's when George, uh, George Floyd occurred. And so I was like in the final stages of editing. And so, you know, it, it, it didn't change the, the story anyway, but if anything, the lens changed that people read the story through, if that may, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's when, you know, for better or for worse, I started getting attention from, you know, I was, I was query, querying and I was sending query letters out. And that's when I started to get attention from, you know, some agents who I think, how can I put this? Who I think, I think were operating under a mandate uh, that, you know, to put 
stories like this at the forefront. Well, it just became uh, very, very, very much more topical. Exactly. So yeah, exactly. I could totally see that. And I think, and, and so I had to kind of sift through some of that because, mm-hmm. you know, this, it was an agenda. It was, it's not an agenda type book, you know, for me, it was, I was telling a story, mm-hmm. you know, it was basically, this is a crime novel. And, you know, I was exploring these issues before George Floyd occurred, you know, um, from, from my, based on some of my experience. And so, you know, for me, all of that just kind of was organic in terms of talking about these things because it was it was through the lens of a black a black cop. So, you know, I think for some people it felt more like um I, I would say for some of the agents who read who read early on, I think some kind of ran from it because it was maybe a little bit too real, <laughs> you know. And I think some were intrigued by it but didn't know how to how to sell it, you know. Um and then others and ultimately the agent I went with fell in love with the story and the characters. And I think that's what happened with my particular agent is that the first thing she said to me, is she said, she said, well, this is a human story. And I said, thank you. Very much is. I, I think, think that, that that's that, what it is. That is a very good description. I have read agenda driven books before, and this has none of the hallmarks of that. It is a <laughs> very human story. And, and it just, it's, it's told in a way that, that lets those issues and those problems and those scenarios and, and, and all of that, it lets it in because all of the people are dealing with these sorts of things uh, mm-hmm. throughout, throughout the, the course of the story. But I think there's zero agenda uh, as a reader. Anyway, that's, that was my perception. And I don't think I'm alone in liking it. Um, we were talking before, but uh, this has been nominated for at least one award. Yeah, it has. So, um, well, actually, so I, I, I won the uh, Book Pipeline Adaptation Award from Pipeline Artists. And so they actually have one for published novels and one for unpublished. But essentially the way it works is that you submit your book as a PDF and they read the first, what, 30 pages or something. Um, and... Uh, they decide, hey, this is a good, it could potentially be television or film kind of solid adaptation. So, um, you know, and you get, a, you get a, obviously, you know, there's a financial part of it there too, and you get a prize. And, and so that was the first thing it actually won. Um, and, um, you know, I thought that was, that was pretty cool. So essentially yeah. now we're, we're, you know, we're, we're working on the, um, the TV pilot uh, for it. So I had to brush off some of my screenwriting skills from, from, you know, early days in, in film school. Um, and then, you know, it's been nominated for a thriller, for a, a thriller award, uh, you know, through ITW. And so, you know, I think that was, you know, I'm not a huge award guy, I'll be honest with you. I don't pay a whole, whole lot of attention when it comes to awards. Uh, because my my thing really is like, well, whether I get an award or not, I'm still going to write, you know, and that, that's always been my philosophy is whether I have an agent or not, or whatever. I'm, I'm I'm still going to write. Like I, I, it's part of I, my identity. So, you know, I think the awards are wonderful because it's nice to know that other people are responding to your work, you know? And so I look at it kind of through that lens, but I think with the thriller award, um, it was nice because I know this book in some ways, is not a traditional thriller. You know what I mean? It's not, it, it it's thriller adjacent, <laughs> because yeah. Yeah, it's much more know, procedural right and so i know that it, it kind of it, it's in a different lane and so it was nice for it still to be recognized as a as a thriller um you know because i think 
the one thing I have encountered sometimes about thrillers, especially when they feature police, is that a lot of stuff happens, and I think, wow, this is this is it. It it, ta- it takes me into this kind of fictional bubble because I say, well, this doesn't feel very real. I mean, not every, you know. I mean, sometimes you have really slow days. You know, uh, cops have slow days. You know what I mean? Like, Most days. Like, you know, so it's like I, in terms of of plotting, I always kind of think, well, okay, let's kind of ground this. Um, and so, you know, under color of law, my approach was really to have a very grounded police thriller where we don't have stuff blowing up and you know it, where it's 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 like you know you get shot and and all of a sudden you know the the guy appears and he's okay you know <laughs> like, it's like no you know i mean it's like <laughs> i wanted it you know or, or someone gets shot and they fly across the room right and the caliber is not even that high so it's like yeah. it's things like that where i'm like you know i didn't want that necessarily to be this you know i thought you were pretty original in a couple of the pivotal scenes involving physical conflict i'll just leave it at that those were a little bit i wouldn't say unconventional but they weren't you know they weren't the chalk picks and so that i thought they worked really really well well you know you mentioned tv and movies i as i was reading this i had a couple of pictures in my head but i'm curious uh if if this were adapted into a film or a short-run tv series uh who would you like to see play trevor finnegan you know i i went through a whole kind of variety of you know, when you're writing a character, you kind of see them in multiple ways. And so early on, I kind of saw Anthony Mackie, you know, kind of early on, a little bit of him. But obviously, I think he was, he would be too old, right? Because Trevor's not that old. I mean, he, you know, he's 28 or so. Yeah, he's like 28. So, and now that wouldn't work. So, you know, I was, I was leaning more toward Kendrick Sampson, um, who is an actor and he's, he's an activist. Um, and I thought it would be a very interesting role simply because because of his his I think his political leanings, but his ability to act as well and, and be solid. I think that would be he would kind of bring the duality that's necessarily necessary for for Trevor, because, you know, it's a duality that exists in him where he obviously has to go along with some things that the department does that he might not agree with. But he also has to, in order to survive, he kind of rationalizes those things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that to ha- an actor would have to be able to do that, you know, and make that believable. And I think, you know, Kendrick Sampson would be able to do that. And he's a young guy. I mean, he, he's, he's done a, a few shows, but um, I think his probably most notable appearance uh, would be uh, Insecure on HBO. And he plays, a, I believe he plays a bipolar character on there who, who has some issues. And so, you know, I felt like he would be, he would be a solid choice. It's always fun to play the, who would play so-and-so in my book game, you know, I mean, if they've ever made a movie <laughs> or TV show out of it, it's interesting to ask other people sometimes, well, who, who do you think would fit this character or that character? Because they often come back with uh, either very insightful answers that I, I have to go, wow, that's perfect. Or crazy things like, you know, just, Nobody even close to what you would pick, you know. So <laughs> yeah. It's, it's always interesting to ask. Now, this will not be the final Trevor, Trevor Finnegan book either. No. So uh, Blue Like Me, which is the the second book in the series, will be out uh, as of now, uh, November. Um, and so it takes place two years after, after um, Under Color of Law. 
And Trevor is in a different place. I mean, not not to spoil anything, but once you kind of read Under Color of Law, you know he can't just go back to being a cop. Um, not to say he won't become a cop again, but he's not going to be a cop again in the, in the second book. And so he finds himself kind of in the position of a consultant uh, working for a law firm and then moves into kind of the private investigator uh, role. But he targets a particular type of individual with his investigations um, and in many ways, Trevor is now playing, paying penance. And this is kind of his albatross where he feels like he, this new mission is something that he has to do to make up for the missteps and his past that is, that is um, examined in under color of law. And so it is very much though about um, the toxic relationships that can exist between partners. Um, There's toxic relationships in general, but specifically what happens with partners and how lines can get very blurred. <laughs> and so uh, to the point where loyalty becomes something incredibly disastrous um, and chaotic. And so he finds himself enmeshed in that. That's a really interesting topic. I, there's so many different ways that you can go with that idea. Uh, so I'll look forward to, to reading that one as well. The title Blue Like Me, it's reminiscent of that idea that you know, Hey, I am a police officer. The color I see is blue. Like, I don't care if you're black, Hispanic, Asian, white, whatever other iteration of race you want to claim you're wearing the same uniform and carrying the same badge as I am. So I see blue and it's a great sentiment. And I think there's an element of truth to it in most cops. I think they definitely feel that way, but Mm -hmm. it's also, it's a little bit naive to say that just because we're part of the same group or organization that suddenly we don't see or aren't yeah. affected by race anymore. Uh, so I, I'm, it's a, it's the title fascinates me as well. And I, I suspect this is a, something that I'll, I'll be reading about in November. <laughs> and, yeah. And part of it too, right. Is it's, it's kind of that blind loyalty a little mm-hmm. bit um, that sometimes hijacks our rational thought. <laughs> You know, because it's and so, you know, it's going to kind of um, examine, examine that and how there's a natural inclination, I think, with with law enforcement to help each other, especially when we're in trouble. Mm -hmm. And when we see each other going down a certain road and and Trevor finds himself in that position of saying, you know, essentially, well, you know, in in this case, you know, it's his old partner, but, you know, she's blue like me. And then she's making Mm -hmm. choices because of her partner, you know, and so it becomes this this cycle of toxicity where no one within this, this cycle kind of says like, Hey, we should probably shouldn't be doing this. You know what I mean? But it's like, eh, but we got, you know, we got to do it because I, I think I can help and, you know, I'll risk it all. That's so. how we, that's how we got into world war one. So uh, <laughs> exactly. I mean, Bruce Springsteen famously said back in the 1980s that uh, blind faith in your government or anything will get you killed. Yep. And, uh, so it is It is a balance, though, because, you know, I mean, one thing that I don't think people are either aware of or they, they aren't mindful of the true impact of it is that brother and sisterhood that exists within law enforcement is there because much like in the military, lives literally can depend on it. Now, yes. I mean, sometimes the, the frequency of that danger and level of that danger can be can be exaggerated or, or in people's minds, but the potential for it always exists. And that's why there's so much uh, diligence in, in, in law enforcement. But I, I do, I think that unless somebody has been in a situation where 
they're responsible for and have to allow their life to be exactly. someone else to be responsible for theirs. Um, it's difficult to understand what kind of loyalty that breeds. And it, it isn't just law enforcement. It isn't just the military. I mean, you work on a, on, on, on certain fishing boats or you cut timber. I mean, there's a lot of jobs where that applies. Yeah. Uh, you did coal together as, as famously was stated in justified the TV show. You know, <laughs> these kinds of things do very much bind men and women together in a way that I think is very powerful. And I like the idea that you're approaching it from the standpoint of sometimes that's toxic. Sometimes that power of that overwhelms our senses and I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm intrigued. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, folks, the book is under color of law and the author is Aaron Philip Clark. Uh, we'll be looking forward to a new Trevor Finnegan book in November of 2022. And that one is Blue Like Me. Aaron, I want to tell you, I've been looking forward to talking with you for a long while, and I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, thank you for having me. This has been great. All right, folks, there you go. Aaron Philip Clark, a very thoughtful uh, person, very smart, uh, fun to talk to. I really enjoyed it. I'm pretty sure we're both going to be at BoucherCon in Minneapolis, if I remember our conversation off mic correctly. So I'm looking forward to maybe raising a glass with the guy, too. I uh, highly encourage you to pick up Under Color of Law. Good book, great mystery, uh, and, and like I said, a lot of character development, a lot of good subtext to, to, to make you think. All right, next episode, we are going to have a lot of fun. I was fortunate enough to be on the Game of Books podcast, Corks and Conversations, which is hosted by Christy Bunting and Kathy Twitero. The cool part about that is not only do you get interviewed by a couple of really wonderful ladies, but you drink wine while you're talking. Talk a little bit about the wine, talk a little bit about your books, and, and, and it's a great time. Well, both Christy and Kathy were generous enough with their time to come on to my show. And so we had a very good conversation for the feature episode of April. And uh, there might have been a little wine involved as well. So you probably don't want to miss that. That is the next episode on Wrong Place, a Right Crime. Frank Zafiro update for you. Hey, I am headed to Left Coast Crime in Albuquerque, New Mexico which I once tweeted accurately, is as hot as the devil's ass. Uh, but it won't be in April. Uh, we're talking high 70s. And Left Coast Crime is a great conference. It's a reader's conference, so it's a, a wonderful time to connect with readers and other authors. So it's been a couple of years since I've been to a conference, and I'm really looking forward to it. I'll be on a panel uh, on Thursday at 1.15 uh, about police procedurals and stereotypes and cliches. And that is, uh, has a great lineup. It's being moderated by, uh, Jim Latwell has my friend, uh, Dana King and TK Thorne, uh, both on it along with myself. Uh, it'll be a lot of fun. I'll be running around with my buddy Cullen Conway a lot. Uh, and, uh, he has a panel on Friday about cozies and, uh, that you want to check that one out as well. And then Friday evening, Colin, Holly West and I are hosting an event called On the Lamb with the Grifters, proudly sponsored by Down and Out Books. Uh, first drink is on us. That's not a joke, uh, but there's only 10 tickets available. I don't know how many have already been grabbed up, but it's in the author connections section there at Left Coast Crime. So if you're headed to Left Coast Crime, whether you're an author or a reader, if you want to hang out with us for about an hour, get the first drink for free, some snacks and some book chat, you know, please sign up and join us. 
And if you don't make it to any of those events, the panel or the On the Lamb or to Collins or whatever, just hope I run into some of you in the hallway. Say hello. Let me know if you're listening to the podcast and what you like and don't like. It is always great to connect with listeners. But uh, Left Coast Crime isn't the only thing going on in my world. I will tell you that through Saturday the 9th of April 2022, my first River City novel, Under a Raging Moon, my first novel ever, ever actually, uh, will be free on Amazon. You can pick it up as a Kindle download for free. If you don't read Kindle or you don't have a Kindle, uh, there is a Kindle app. You can find out more about that on my website. Just click on the No Kindle, No Problem option in the menu there. So Under a Raging Moon free through the 9th. And on the 15th of April, The Tattered Blue Line, Short Stories of Contemporary Policing, will be released. This is an anthology that I put together and edited. Uh, I have a story in it as well called One Fine Day. Uh, And all of the contributors are active or former or, in a couple cases, current law enforcement professionals. And the whole idea of this anthology is to explore the humanity of those uh, police professionals and the humanity of those that they encounter uh, in their in their duties. Policing is a complex profession, and there's a lot going on these days surrounding it, a lot of conversations, and um, this is our small contribution to that conversation. So the Tattered Blue Line, short stories of contemporary policing, will be available on April 15th in Kindle form and in paperback. Uh, lastly, I wanted to offer my congratulations to the Derringer finalists. Now, the Derringer Award is given by the Short Mystery Fiction Society for the best short mystery fiction of the year. Five finalists in four different categories. I won't run down all of them here, but I did want to point out that recent guest Barb Goffman has a story. Of course, a uh, longtime friend of the show, John Floyd, a frequent Derringer finalist. Uh, has one in the flash category and one of the contributors to the tattered blue line Stacy Woodson also has a story that is a finalist Uh, as close as I got to it folks is that Michael Bracken his story Aloha Boys is a finalist and that story appeared along with my own hallmarks of the job in a double shot novella collection from PI Tales. Uh, but good luck uh, and congratulations to all the nominees. It's a very cool award. All right. I want to say thank you to Aaron for coming on the show, for having a very engaging conversation, for writing a hell of a book that I enjoyed very much. Also to Down Out Books for being a great sponsor. And lastly, to you, the listener, thanks for listening to this show. Thanks for being part of this journey. And I will see you next week with Christy Bunting and Kathy Totuero. Until then, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime. <laughs>